We have begun a series entitled The Human Trilemma. And I'm not speaking of the dilemma, but trilemma. And what I mean by that is that the human condition begins at the taproot of our spiritual condition. And it extends into our mental health. And that extends into our relational health, or the lack thereof. In fact, as a pastoral counselor, I've mentioned to you before that many times people come to me primarily, in fact, because they're having a real difficult time within their relationships, whether it's a marital relationship or a parent-child relationship, or just being able to form and maintain healthy friendships even. Uh, a situation with a boss or co-workers that, in the marketplace. Uh, it's, it just seems and would appear that relationships are some of the hardest things that we ever attempt to do. And it's the thing we long for the most. Uh, God designed us to be social creatures. We are not islands unto ourselves. We are people who need social contact. We need other people in our lives. And so the frustration and that comes about when it seems that no matter how hard we try, uh, there's a lot of chaos and pain and misery in our relationships, or there's old patterns that just seem to be keep, keep coming up time and time and time again, is very frustrating. I and mean, we all know, and I've talked to people who have been on their third, fourth, or even fifth marriage. We know people who have experienced a break between good friends, and it's been heartbreaking to go through that or the seeming inability just to even carry a conversation with a close family member without breaking out in a fight or hurt feelings or pain. Children don't understand the parents and the parents don't understand the children. You get my point. What I'm saying is that, yes, there are mental defects, issues of immaturity, emotional immaturity and development, that affect our ability to form and maintain healthy relationships. But at the taproot of the mental health condition is the spiritual condition. I read to you last time in episode 1, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Let me just remind you of that text. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we once uh, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. Now that's some very clear, unvarnished teaching right there. Paul is di diagnosing and accurately diagnosing the human condition as being dead in trespasses and sins. God meant it when he said, on the day that you shall eat of this fruit, of this tree, you will surely die. Sin is deadly. And just because we're still upright and taking in air and taking in nourishment and walking about 
doesn't mean that we haven't experienced the deadly effects of sin. Sinners are such not because they sin. They sin because they're sinners. And the rebellion and the defiance and the self-will that is inherent within sin has caused us to turn our backs on God, to walk away from God, to no longer desire God. The compulsion of sin within our flesh to be our own God is so, so strong. To use the metaphor of a river, the, the current is too strong and the river is too wide for us to step out of it. And we can't step out of it primarily because we don't want to step out of it. That's the human condition. It only makes sense then that to, to suffer the inability to form and maintain healthy and loving relationships with others who are also created in the image of God, would suffer if the transcendent primary relationship with our Creator has been betrayed, has been rejected. So we're dead in trespasses and sins. It's a spiritual issue, and it is a mental issue. He says here that we're fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So what we're doing in this series, we're examining the spiritual condition that affects the mental condition and look at how that can heal our relationships. Now, let me give you some hope. Excuse me. If you are in Christ... The gospel is about more than getting you to heaven when you die. In the last couple of hundred years, evangelicalism has focused on kind of a get saved and behave type of strategy of Christian living. Get saved, hang on till Jesus comes back, or you die and go to heaven. It's like the gospel's primary worth is post-mortem. I mean, we, we, we just, it's, it's a post-death type of thing. But that's not the gospel. Certainly, we, we are possessors of heaven by faith in Jesus Christ. But the gospel does two primary things that are very important. We have atonement for our sins, past, present, and future. We are released from the guilt of our sins, past, present, and future. But we are also redeemed from what we are. Meaning that rebellious creature, that nature, that heart of stone, that defiant will that no longer wants to keep God in our minds. How could we not but break down mentally? Romans 1 is very clear that fallen man does not want to keep God, the creator, in their mind. And that God has given them over, therefore, to a depraved mind. So the mind is in trouble. There's no question. Mental health issues are only getting worse in our country. 
school shootings, mass shootings in general, lying, division, violence, fear, injustice. Those are all things that are symptomatic of a society, of a people, of a humanity, of a race that has turned its back on God. I will be my own God has consequences. So that is the diagnosis. What's necessary then is to read the rest of Ephesians chapter 2 and get some hope for our spiritual condition. So let's do that now. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 4. I'll read verse 3 again just to keep our context. Among whom also we all once conducted ourselves. See, it's a universal condition. You're not terminally unique. As bad as your situation is, it's the common universal situation. We all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Now, here are, here's coming two words that are two of the most beautiful words you will ever hear. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. Listen, if you think you have to earn God's love, you can let go of that. God has proven that while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. The whole point of Ephesians chapter 1 is to tell us what God has done for us. And then Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, is to remind us the condition that we are in when he did that for us in his Son. When the Father accomplished your redemption, and, and, and sent Jesus to atone for your sins, you were in a state of utter death and trespasses and sins, and utter rebellion, aligned with Satan, children of wrath. Nonetheless, but God, who is rich in mercy, see, the basis of our atonement and redemption in Christ is mercy. The last thing that we should pray for is justice. If we got what we deserved, we'd be toast. We'd be dust. We come to God. We come to God in Christ on the basis of mercy. And because of his great love with which he loved us. Imagine, even when we were dead in trespasses. Think of that. When Paul first wrote those words, beloved, those are some of the most radical words that you could have ever said. And because we become familiar with them, because we become familiar with these words, we kind of ho-hum if we're not careful. Yes, yes. But remember, Paul is speaking this within the context of first century Judaism. Even Judaism that had confessed Christ, but was still maintaining 
that Christ had come and died and rose again so that we would be enabled to keep the law as the means, God-ordained means, of gaining righteousness. In other words, it was a false gospel. It, it, it just, we just can't get our heads around the fact that God in his Son has accomplished our atonement and our redemption. Incomplete. Totally complete. Incomplete, total fulfillment. What we want, by default, is to have a gospel that gets us started and then we finish. God does his part, then we do our part, and between the two of us, we get us saved. <clears throat> but that is not the gospel. And there were people, the majority, by the way, of Christian leaders in Jerusalem that were fanning out into uh, Asia Minor. At the same time, Paul was going out in, in Barnabas and Paul and Silas later in their mission into the Asia Minor. And Paul's preaching a gospel of grace as being all-sufficient. Paul's preaching a gospel of divine accomplishment. And these other men who were professing Christians were going out and preaching a gospel of human achievement. And what I'm saying to you today is if you believe for a moment that the gospel is on any level, on any point, or to any degree, a gospel of your achievement, you're in trouble. If you're going to get well spiritually, if you're going to be truly spiritually healthy and have a chance of gaining mental life and peace and consequently being able to form and maintain healthy and loving relationships as a witness to the power of the gospel, you got to get this right, beloved. You have to understand that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of of divine accomplishment on your behalf. While you were yet powerless, while you were yet God's enemies, sworn enemies, running the other direction, objects of wrath, instead, God made you an object of mercy. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins. That's a gospel that didn't sell well in the first century. The Greeks didn't like it any better than the Jews. The Greeks looked at man as the measure of all things and wisdom as man's highest achievement. In Corinth, they were working overtime to turn Christianity into a, another wisdom religion. So Paul would go preach the gospel of God's divine accomplishment on behalf of sinners, the good news, a divine accomplishment, 
and then professing Jewish Christians or professing Greek or Roman Christians would come in with their version of the gospel. Or it was a blend of the two. Sometimes it was, it was what was called Hellenistic Judaism, Greek Judaism, Greek-speaking Jews, who had the worst of both worlds, who were teaching you had to be circumcised, and they were teaching that you had to obey the law in order to gain the necessary righteousness. And even though Christ did come to make, you, make it possible for you to do that, it was still a self-help, self-works type of salvation, as was it was in, in, in Greece, in Athens. You remember when Paul preached in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, he mentioned the resurrection of the dead, and they just blew him off. The Greeks had no paradigm for a wrathful God, for the wrath against his creation. It was foolishness to them to think that there was a creator who had wrath towards his own creation. They didn't see any need for the cross to be an atoning work. And there are those today who say the same thing. So your first step, your first step towards gaining a, a life that works a, a mind filled with life and peace as opposed to death and relationships that are something more than chaotic and painful and miserable is to get the gospel right, to understand that it's the gospel of divine achievement, a divine accomplishment, not a gospel of human achievement. Even with grace. See, this is the... This is how deceptive this is. The false teachers in, in, during the time of the apostles believed in Jesus, they said. They believed in grace. They believed in faith. But all of that was all about empowering them to either follow some kind of wisdom path or to see the Torah, the law of Moses, as continuing to be the necessary prescription for gaining the righteousness necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. It was very subtle. And many Christians today, by default, have that kind of view of the gospel. They believe they're saved by grace through faith, but experientially, they live as though they're under law. That there's something yet that they need to do, or ultimately, their redemption, their salvation, their atonement in Christ is somehow subject to their performance on some level. It's got to be, right? <laughs> it's just really difficult for us to accept the fact that God has in his Son absolutely accomplished our redemption. But he has. And that's the first step in spiritual health. Now let me give you real briefly something else that I want to have you think about. 
And that is Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, because this is another very important paradigm to your spiritual health. I was reading this chapter recently, and it struck me that in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, this is right after Pentecost, right after the, the Spirit had been poured out. Peter has preached his sermon. 3,000 people have come to the Lord in one day. And now the community is forming. And Luke, the author of this, of this uh, history, of this book, writes, And with many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now listen carefully to verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. I'm going to read that again. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, comma, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. End quote. Now, some of your translations may read uh, in the Apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and that's fine. But it isn't necessary to add the, um, the, um, the the there. It isn't necessary to add and the fellowship, the definite article in the grammar. Because the word apostles modifies both doctrine and fellowship. Now, I'm not here to give you a grammar lesson. What I'm here to say is this. There is the apostles' doctrine, the apostles' teaching, and the apostles' fellowship. Now, why is this important to you? Because it has everything to do with how we approach the text of Scripture. You and I have been given a beautiful gift, immeasurable in its worth, and that is the revelation, God's self-revelation in his Son, as that revelation was, was entrusted to the apostles. And there were only one set of apostles to whom that revelation was entrusted. So we have to understand then that, and they continued, they meeting those who were converted, which would you and I would be to qualify for that then. We could re read it this way. And we are to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. In other words, we are to continue steadfastly in what the apostles taught, <clears throat> not what gurus teach, not what other people outside of the apostolic tradition teach, but what the apostles taught. And we are so blessed to have that preserved for us in our New Testament. 
Okay, stick with me now, because I'm going to go to First John. I want you. I really want you to get this because it's so precious. First John, chapter one. The Apostle John says this: "That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes." Who's we here? Is it you and me? No, no. We have not heard Jesus directly. Some people say today they have, and that's a little scary. What we have seen with our eyes. Some people say they've seen Jesus. That's even scarier. What the apostle is saying here is, we are first-hand witnesses. We have heard, we have seen with our eyes, we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That's the Great Commission. He is to declare the witness. Now, listen to this. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us. In other words, in Acts 2.42, there were two factors the doctrine of the apostles, and the fellowship with the apostles. You and I are called into fellowship with the twelve. You and I are called into fellowship with the apostles, who are the duly ordained trustees of the revelation, God's revelation in his Son. Jesus entrusted that revelation to his apostles, not to your celebrity preacher, <clears throat> not to some famous spiritual guru, not to some popular author. He entrusted that revelation to the apostles and our primary fellowship with the revelation of God in Christ is through the apostles. Now, there are many good writers today, there are many good authors, and there are many good preachers and teachers, and, but they have to be secondary, and they're only as good as they are teaching the mind of the, of the apostles as represented in the New Testament to you. What we need in order to be spiritually alive saved and growing in spiritual health is to be in the fellowship of the apostles. <clears throat> to be listening to the apostles as they did back in Acts. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. There's two things there. The apostles' doctrine and fellowship. And you, and hear me now clearly, you are only in fellowship with the apostles to the degree that you are listening to regularly, contextually, and thoroughly their teachings as preserved for us in this precious gift we call the New Testament. And as it relates to the uh, Old Covenant as well. But it's through the eyes and the minds of the apostles that we grasp 
the precious self-revelation of God, the redeeming, saving revelation of God and His Son. Even the gospel of Jesus Christ, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels themselves are written by apostles. So we have to be clear that we are in the fellowship of the apostles. That means a couple things. First of all, as I've already said, we don't rely on celebrity preachers as our authority. We don't even rely on commentaries as our authority. We don't rely on any other human source as our authority. We ultimately rely on the apostolic witness in the New Testament. And that means, beloved, that we must be disciplined, we must be reading thoroughly, contextually, and on an ongoing basis. And secondly, it means that anything else apart from that is going to lead you astray. So we rely upon, we are in the fellowship of the apostles or we're not. We can already see from Acts chapter 2 that these people, early into the church, days after Pentecost, continued steadfastly. How many Christians today do you know who continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship? With all due kindness, love, and respect, you know what I hear? Repeatedly, I hear people say, well, I'm just busy. I've got a lot going on right now. Or I don't have the time to study. And so they get dependent. They get dependent upon devotionals. Or a scripture here, or a passage there. Or some nice little talk on Sunday mornings. And they dry up spiritually. And then they begin to dry up mentally. And then they can't understand why they're having such difficulty in their personal relationships. I've been there. I've done, I've done that. I understand. I'm not speaking from some point of moral superiority. <clears throat> I know what it was like for me to try to form and maintain healthy relationships 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and what it's like today, and it's night and day. And it's because by the mercies of God, he has led me and brought me into this understanding of the self-revelation of God in his son as being, first of all, an absolute achievement, accomplishment on his part, not on man's part. I've been set free from having to save myself. And then I am in the fellowship with the apostles. How can you say you're in fellowship with somebody you don't spend any time with them, right? Of course. So what I'm encouraging you to do is get to know the, the apostles, the fellowship. Become continually, steadfastly in fellowship with the apostles by spending time in the New Testament. Read in a letter all the way through. Be always working through one of the Gospels. Learn to read your Bible contextually and thoroughly. Get some good study helps. 
Ask your pastor. Ask your elders. Ask me. Ask someone you can trust to help you learn how to read your Bible and read it well. And then you'll be on your path. Because it's the fellowship that we have with the apostles. <clears throat> it's, it's exclusive with the apostles. Now, Paul, John, back to First John real briefly. John is saying what he's saying here. We have seen and we declare to you so that you also may have fellowship with us. Us being the apostles. He's telling his readers, I want you to have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. And then all through his letter, he talks about learning to love one another. It's beautiful. But we got to get our, to use a phrase, we have to get our spiritual ducks in a row if we're going to be mentally healthy. That's my message. As a pastor or counselor, that's my message. Ultimately, you have to get your spiritual ducks in a row. And we have the Christian faith. The Christian gospel is a reasoned faith. We don't ask people to crucify their intellect. The truth can be known the mind is the gateway to the heart. And so we must submit to the teaching of the apostles because that's how we get it into our mind. We know cognitively before, by the mercies of God and the work of the Spirit, it gets down into our heart. So are you in fellowship with the apostles today? Or do you give them kind of a passing glance from time to time and rely on some radio preacher, some TV preacher, or your own pastor? Do you thumb through your Bible and wonder what it would be like to be able to know how to read it? Very important. If you are in fellowship with the apostles, then you are continually, steadfastly in fellowship and their teaching. Okay, let me close then with this just one last passage real briefly here. <clears throat> These things are so serious, and, and but they're so joyful too. I mean, the, the problem, the human trilemma is very serious stuff, not to be trifled with, but the solution God has made available in his Son. And that, for that, beloved, we can rejoice. We can have great joy. Okay, Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and we'll be done. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proves steadfast, speaking about the law, at Mount Sinai. And every transgression and disobedience received a just reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and listen carefully now, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him, the apostles. God also bearing witness, both with signs and wonders, various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit 
according to his own will. End quote. So there is a solution to your relational pain. There is a solution to your relational issues. It is possible to form and maintain healthy, loving relationships. I am a witness to that personally. I am a witness to how that is possible. I have those relationships today with my wife, with my children, with friends. But it was something that was gifted to me as I got my spiritual life in order, I got my mental life in order, my mental health issues addressed, and now I'm walking in the grace of God, in gratitude, an object of His mercy, and you can too. Somebody once told my wife and I, you know, you two are poster children. If you can recover and you can go on to lead a healthy, functional, productive life, anyone can. <laughs> we, we chuckle about that these days at times. But we do so with great sobriety and gratitude, deep, unending gratitude for what God has accomplished in his son on our behalf and then applied it through the teaching and fellowship of the apostles by the Spirit. May the grace of God be with you and keep you in his mercy always. Until next time, amen. <laughs>